Hello, welcome to Feed, Play, Love, the bite-sized podcast for parents. I'm Siobhan Hunt. This is a show all about parenting. I speak to experts and carers about everything from fussy eating, toddler behavior, sleep, and more. I want to tell you a story about my daughter. She's almost seven, and when she gets angry, she can impulsively hit out. Moments later, she will deny she did anything wrong, even though I saw her do it. When this happens, I'm keenly aware that she's feeling shame over her actions, and I'm caught in a bind. What she did was clearly inappropriate, but I don't want her to feel unworthy because she's made a mistake. Shame is a complex emotion to navigate as a parent because it's the last thing we want our kids to feel. Joseph Burgo is a psychotherapist and author. In his latest book, Shame, Free Yourself, Find Joy and Build True Self-Esteem, he argues that many of us have misunderstood shame and its role in building healthy self-esteem. Hi, Joseph. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. How do you define shame? I define shame as a whole family of emotions. It's not just that big, toxic, scary thing that we all want to avoid. It's a set of emotions that have in common um, a painful awareness of self. So anytime you become self-conscious in a way that makes you feel bad, if you're, you know, if you're embarrassed or you feel guilty or you feel ashamed or humiliated or exposed, these are, these are all shame emotions. Some of them are big and last for a long time. Some are mild and pass quickly. Um, but they all have that painful awareness of self. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's, a, it's a scary, toxic kind of feeling, but sometimes it's appropriate and sometimes it has a lesson to teach us about our behavior and about ourselves. And why is it important for you that shame is defined this way? Because as you mentioned, most of us will say the word shame and think immediately of that big toxic feeling. I think we've we've become a um, kind of a shame phobic society, and um, because shame is defined in this bad way, anything that stirs up shame in us becomes a kind of an enemy, and we want to fight back, we want to lash out, we want to blame someone else, we want to refuse to feel shame, and I think that actually sometimes shame is the way we ought to feel. I just um, described a situation that does happen quite often with my daughter. And as I mentioned there, I part of my reason for not wanting her to feel shame is that I want her to feel worthy and confident. Um, what's the flaw in that approach? The flaw in that approach is that you want her to feel worthy and competent because she is able to manage her emotions and her reactions. So you need, in that instance, to help her learn how to to deal with that feeling that comes up when she does something impulsive that she knows is wrong. So if you sort of ignore it or you just reassure her, she's not able to learn from that shame experience because the shame is telling her, oh, oh, I did something that makes me feel bad about myself. I wish I didn't do that kind of thing. So if she can bear that shame long enough and listen to it and try harder next time, well, then eventually she'll get control of her impulses and she'll feel really proud of herself because she's been able to do that. That's what I call you know, authentic self-esteem as opposed to 
everything you do is great just because you're you. That's that doesn't help anybody. Yeah. Um, now, just reversing a little bit to the first year of life, why is that first year so important in terms of laying the foundations of self-esteem? It has a lot to do with brain development. I go into that in, in my book, but, you know, babies are born with their brains. They're not fully developed yet. You know, they're not fully grown. Um, and they continue developing a lot during the first year of life. And to develop normally, they, they depend upon these interactions with their caregivers that are infused with mutual joy, face-to-face kind of joy. And that releases endorphins, you know, those feel-good uh, neurochemicals. And those are crucial for the brain to develop normally. You know, shame might be important later, but the first year of life, it's pretty much all about joy and feeling like you're the beautiful center of your parents' universe. And I love how you describe that in the book because um, you say it's good for the child, for them to feel like they are the center of the universe. But so many parents in that first year will experience that that's just what it is, that you really don't have much choice about the matter. They are in both um, the fact that you love them so much, but also in the fact they're so needy that they that's just what happens. Right. What's the impact um, when it doesn't? And I'm thinking here of children who maybe have been in neglectful situations for the first year of life and later on either their family life improves and their, their parents get better at connecting with them or they um, end up living with a, a foster family or an adopted family who take care of them. If they don't have that foundation in the first year, how can that affect them later on? Can it be overcome? I like to use the, um, the analogy of rickets. I think I use that in the book, where if you don't get the, the right amount of vitamin D in the, the time when your bones are developing, you kind of have, you show the lasting effects for life. It doesn't mean that you're a cripple and not, you can't do anything, but you'll, you'll bear the effects for life. I think of like early severe deprivation as the same way, because because your brain in that first year of life didn't get that joyful effusiveness in your relationships with your parents, it, it, didn't, it doesn't develop normally. It doesn't have the nutrients, let's say, it needs to develop in the, in the right way. And it doesn't mean you can't develop things later on in life. It doesn't, you know, there is neuroplasticity, but to some extent, you're going to feel that. And, and it, for, for some people, it's sort of a lasting feeling of self-doubt or a feeling of ugliness or unworthiness. And, and they have to work really hard in life to, you know, to overcome that feeling. I don't think they can get rid of it, but it doesn't mean they can't lead meaningful lives and feel good about themselves. And is that what you refer to as core shame? Like that really, in a way, it's like that bigger, more toxic feeling. Is that what is the negative um, the negative, I guess, manifestation of shame? It, it is. That's, that is core shame. And it's important to remember that it's not because anybody shamed these children. It isn't because they were beaten or sexually abused. It's because, often because they were neglected or because there was, there was a deeply depressed parent who withdrew from the relationship or because there was violent discord in the marriage. All of these things that go wrong can leave behind this feeling of core shame that lasts a lifetime, even when they're not directly shamed. 
You mentioned um, about as children grow older, how shame can be actually very important for their development, the different elements of shame and of self-awareness. But are children more vulnerable to um, the more negative impact of shame because they are still forming their own understanding of self. I'm thinking here of um, incidents where a parent might humiliate a child or um, point out their flaws or something like that. Are they more vulnerable to that having a lasting impact because they're still developing? They they are indeed. And, you know, there's a certain amount of shaming that is normal and beneficial even. And I don't mean humiliating. Um, I, I take pains in the book to distinguish the kind of micro-shaming that goes on in normal socializing of children. You know, a look of disapproval, the word no, the kind of turning away with mild distaste when you smell that the dirty diaper, they've had another accident in the diaper. These are all little examples of shame. And just as joy is important for brain development in the first year of life, it turns out that these shame experiences are crucial in the second year of life. They need to be small and manageable, and then they need to be followed up with you know, joyful reconnection when the child learns the appropriate behavior. On the other hand, if parents are humiliating and belittling, that that is going to destroy their sense of self. And, and if they're really young and it's persistent for years, it will leave behind this feeling of core shame we were talking about. Can you explain to me um, how you see the way forward with self-esteem in terms of it being an earned feeling, like that children have to earn self-esteem. It's not just about, as you mentioned before, praising children. Right. Well, you know, we've been through oh, a few decades now of the self-esteem movement telling us as parents that we need to lavish unstinting praise on our kids, and that's how they build self-esteem. And it turns out that's not true. It doesn't work. And and what what i show in the book is that from the very beginning, babies, children are purposeful. They want to do things. They want to reach that object. They really badly want to crawl. They want to get up on their feet. And when they achieve it, when they finally take their first step or they're finally able to roll over, they, you can see they feel happy. You know, maybe we won't call it self-esteem yet, but they feel good about themselves in some way. And it feels even better when their parents are on the sidelines, you know, applauding. Yay, you did it, finally. Um, so that's the model for building self-esteem throughout life for children and for adults is, you know, you have, you have intention, you want to do something, you have a goal. It could be a small goal, but you have a goal. You work for it, you achieve it, and there's pride in achievement, and then that pride feels even better when you're connected with people who care about you and who are happy for your achievements too. That's, that's the way we all build self-esteem, not by being told that we're great. You write about your own experience as a child and as adolescence, one where your mother didn't appreciate a drawing you made, saying that all the cars were the same, and another where it appeared to you that she basically disdained your singing. In those two scenarios, was that an appropriate 
level of shame in your mind? Because as a parent, I hear that and I kind of think, oh, couldn't she at least have said the cars looked great? Did she have to say they all looked the same? I mean, what's your take on those kind of situations? Uh, I I bring up my mother as an example of of bad parents, not <laughs> as appropriate parents. Phew. Um, <laughs> not so great for you, but she, no, she was she was um, she was very sarcastic and belittling as a mother. So I don't think either one of those were examples of appropriate shame. You know, when your when your kid is four years old and has the initiative to draw, get out the crayons and draw a whole mural. Um, you know, I think. You could praise him for it, and if you, if there was a space, you might say, "Huh, you know, maybe you could, maybe you could make the cars a little bit different, or maybe you could add some tail fins on this particular model." But you know, just your only comment is, "They all look the same." is is humiliating. You know, you're, you, I came to her. A child comes to a parent saying, "Look what I can do," and they want to be loved and praised, and you know, that's what parents ought to do. You know, within reason, right? So effectively what I'm seeing you say is you don't want to praise them for every single little thing that they do, but in terms of positive shame, it's more about allowing them to be independent and not doing absolutely everything for them. Yes, yes, indeed. That's a big part of it. And, you know, shame outside of the family, shame out in the world is an inevitable part of life for everybody. And that's not just bullying. It's, you know, it's the shame of feeling like left out of some group of friends you'd like to belong to. That that feels like shame. It's doing poorly on a test you thought you'd done well on. That's a kind of shame. And we have to be able to manage those experiences because they're going to come our way throughout life. We're going we're gonna to not get jobs. We're going to lose promotions. We're going to be ghosted by somebody on Facebook. We're going to be shamed in microwaves all the time. And we have to be able to manage it, to bear with it, and sometimes to learn from it, to learn the lesson that shame is teaching us. That's part of building self-esteem too. It sounds a lot like when we talk about emotion coaching, the words that come up or the feelings that come up we're trying to teach our kids about are things like anger, frustration, happiness, joy. Shame seems like it needs to be part of it, but it hasn't so far. Is that um, that how you see it? Do you think we should be using the word shame in our emotion coaching with our kids? Um, I, I do, and, and I, I really do, but I think we're, we're already doing it, but we don't call it that. We just use other words. I, I'm seeing a lot of conversation now, both when it comes to children and when it comes to adults out in the, in the working world of, about failure, failure experiences and learning from your failures so you can grow. I think that's, they call it failure. I call it shame. It's the same thing. We talk a lot about role modeling as as parents. Um, When it comes to emotion coaching, we're teaching them about different emotions. Um, But is is there something about us showing children that we can sit in those uncomfortable feelings as well? Like, should we be truly embracing those, that gamut of emotion that comes under the title of shame, like embarrassment or even humiliation? Like, I, I can't remember ever talking to my children about that. Is that something we can role model as well? Oh, absolutely. I think that one of the the major ways that children learn is by 
imitating the ways that their parents react to similar kind of situations. And very often what they do is they learn their parents' defenses. So if they see a parent feeling ashamed and they instantly get angry and accusatory and start blaming someone else, they learn, oh, oh, that's how I deal with shame. When, when shame comes up, I just, I just bat it away and, and point the finger at somebody else. Um, so if they see a parent who instead has a sense of humor, maybe, about herself, and she feels embarrassed, and she says, whoa, that was really embarrassing. Gosh, my face is all hot. You know, can kind of acknowledge the feeling, and, but not be overwhelmed by it. You know, and it's, not, it's not the end of the world. You can manage embarrassment. Joseph, it has been fascinating speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Joseph Burgo. He's a psychotherapist and author of Shame. We'll pop links up to the book because there is way more information than we could cover in this interview there. Just head to babyology.com.au forward slash feed, play, love. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced by Elise Cooper and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. You can get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.